0: appreciate that. that song. I that When we think about how big God is, sometimes we forget how personal He is. And I'm thankful that He's not only a big God, but He's a personal God. Mm-hmm. If you would this morning, uh, I want you to go ahead and put your ribbon in Ephesians chapter 5. And once you put your ribbon in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to go back to our place in Colossians chapter 3, and as I do every Sunday for the visitors and for those that will listen online, I just like to remind everyone of the context that we're looking at. The book of Colossians was one of the prison epistles written by the Apostle Paul, and he was writing in response to his friend Epaphras. And Epaphras founded the church at Colossae, and even though it was a great church, they were sound doctrinally, they were loving, he was concerned about all of the apostasy in the city of Colossae that he was that somehow it would find its way into the church. And uh, a couple of things that Paul really dealt with were legalism and mysticism. Legalism add wor- adds works to the gospel. Mysticism adds extra biblical revelation to what God has revealed about Himself and about salvation. And for the first two chapters, Paul is really dealing with uh, who Christ is. He is the preeminent one. He is the creator of all things. He is God. And he reminds us of who we are in Jesus Christ, in that God, and in the gospel. And by the time you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, we see this great transitional verse It says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. This is both a condition and a challenge. He's saying, if you know Christ and if you love Him, prove it. And then for all of chapter 3, we've been looking at traits of the resurrected life in Christ. There's going to have to be some things that die. There's going to have to be some things that grow. But then by the time you get to our text uh, this morning and what we've been dealing with, he he talks about how the resurrected life manifests itself in our family. And we spent two sermons preaching about uh, what biblical submission looks like in wives. And I think it's probably different than perhaps you ever heard. That's kind of the feedback that I've gotten. We've confused compliance with submission. Submission is much greater, much more loving, and as I said, I believe it's, uh, su- the submission of the wife is a hard issue, and I, that, therefore I believe it's at least 50% of the man's responsibility to get it because submission is earned. It can't be coerced. And we're going to look at that even more uh, today because it's the husband's turn. Uh, ladies, I know you have awaited that, and you will be so glad to know that just like with the men, I'm going to spend two sermons preaching about loving husbands. And so uh, I don't know what Scott meant by Wendy. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he's just nervous this morning. I don't know. But that's what we're going to be dealing with. So um, in our text, let's look at Colossians chapter 3 and we'll begin in verse 19. This is our base verse, but we're really going to spend most of our time in Ephesians looking at a companion passage, but Colossians three and verse 18 simply say, or three and verse 19 simply says, "Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful for your word, God that we don't have to wander around in life with no God. Lord, that we know the story of salvation, how you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for sinners like us. Lord, that if anybody would just simply repent and believe that gospel, you would save them and clean them and forgive them of their sin and make them a child of God. Lord, I pray that you would just empty me of sin itself, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, uh, Lord, as a husband, Lord, you would make me the husband that you want me to be. And Lord, I pray that uh, only Christ would be magnified and seen this morning. Take us where we are. Show us where we are. And then take us to where we need to be concerning our relationship with you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we're simply looking at the next couple of weeks on husbands love your wives. Husbands love your wives. And here in our text, where it says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now this term bitterness, we always tend to associate that with an outgrowth of unforgiveness and certainly that is true. But sometimes it can simply mean to be harsh. And so in a very real way, he's saying, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh to them. And so, now listen, I know this is deep, okay? Y'all are taking notes, this is profound. But when it comes to certain things, there's just certain things I didn't have to be taught to do. Nobody had to teach me to eat. My mother will tell you that I knew from day one what that feeling in my stomach was and I wanted it satisfied. Same's true for you. Nobody had to teach me how to sleep. I know how to sleep, okay? We know how to sleep. It just comes naturally. And unfortunately... Nobody had to teach me how to sin either. Nobody had to teach me how to lie. Those things just came naturally from that sinful nature within me and within you. Those things came naturally. So I can deduce by default that if the Apostle Paul is telling these Christian husbands, by the way, that if he's telling these Christian husbands to love your wives and be not harsh to them, it means it doesn't come natural. And by the way, I would say the exact opposite. I, I would say being unloving and at times being harsher with us, sometimes because of our sin nature, those are the things that come naturally. Those are the things that we have to fight against. And, and so this is for everybody in here. And let me say this. This is not coming from somebody who has arrived as a husband. I'm not. I'm not there. This, I'm, I'm not standing and looking out from my ivory tower at these peasants that, man, if they could just get where I am, they could get it all figured out. That's, that's not what's happening this morning. I'm telling you, you're looking at a man that knows he needs the grace of God for everything. Not just to love my wife, but to love my neighbor, and to love that person that cuts me off in traffic, and, and to love those that mess up my order at McDonald's. Or, you know, we could go down the list. We need that kind of grace in our life every day. To show the love of Christ. And so this is not... Look, I'm here with you this morning. This is a we sermon. And I could just as easily set a mirror up here as I preach, but the thing is, I've already studied this. I've already had to get some things right. I've already had to pray. So we're cocked and locked, baby. We're ready to go. (laughs) But I'm with you this morning. This is not not me towering over you. I'm here with you. Uh, God commands men to love their wives' own purpose. It doesn't happen by accident. And if a woman, listen, if the woman's struggle, and we talked about this over the past couple of weeks, if the woman's struggle is the desire to be in the man's place of authority, then the man's struggle is to dominate his wife. And I told you that all of this goes back to the fall. None of this existed before man sinned in the garden. God's plan was perfect. He made everything good. He looked at His creation and said, it is very good. But we find out in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 that Adam and Eve have fallen. God is confronting them. And He makes the statement that some of the results of the fall would be that women would uh, have greater pain and childbearing. But also he makes this statement, "...and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over you." And we mentioned that doesn't just speak of a desire for a wife to her husband. That was already true before the fall. What it means is, is her desire because of the fall would be to turn that authority structure on its head, and the woman desires to be in the place of authority that the man has. Uh, But the flip side of that is that man would rule over his wife. The temptation for the man is to dominate the woman. If the woman, uh, if her struggle is to manipulate in a power struggle, the man's temptation is to dominate in the power struggle. Both are true and real, and we see both of them played out right before our eyes. Isn't it amazing how relevant the Word of God is? That we can read about something that happened thousands of years ago and the effects of that sin, that fall. And so we see both of these attitudes, both of these sins go back to the fall. They're a result of the fall. And this is certainly the case uh, during the time which Paul was writing as far as the domination of women. Women were viewed as little more than property. Uh, I found a quote by a well-known 2nd century B.C. uh, Roman statesman by the name of Marcus Cato. Uh, So we're within a 200-year span here of when Paul is writing. And Marcus Cato said this, If you catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her without a trial. But if she were to catch you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. She has no rights. This coming from a high up Roman statesman. This is the time... In which women were living. And unfortunately, it's still like this in many parts of the world, but it was certainly the norm back then. And so I, I want you to, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to just glaze over this. And that is what a revolutionary statement that Paul is making by the inspiration of God to say, men love your wives. He might as well have said slave owners love. Uh, love your slaves and be willing to die for them. What a revolutionary statement. And so listen don 't buy the narrative that Christianity hates women, that somehow Christianity and their ancient patriarchy want to lord themselves over their wives hog wash. In fact, I find it interesting that the people that make that statement they never moved to Iran. They never moved to Cuba. God created women. God loves women. Uh, he, he elevates women. He, and so we see this in the Scriptures. We see the heart of God. And this was a revolutionary thing in that time. What You want, you want me to love my wife and be willing to die for her? What a, what a revolutionary statement. And so, listen, uh, the, the true biblical Christianity has always honored and valued women. We see the heart of God here. And so with that in mind, we can go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5. And we're going to be here for the remainder of the message. And the reason that I'm going to Ephesians 5, I'm I'm kind of cutting into my Wednesday night. But Ephesians 5 is a great commentary on the one verse that we read in Colossians 3. Not only does the Bible define itself... The Bible is its own commentary. We see a great commentary on what it means for husbands to love their wives. And so the question that I want to wrestle with is how are men to love their wives? Let's, go, let's read this text. I'm only going to really pull from one verse today, but I want you to see the context. And I may get windy, so, but I want you to see this. <laughs> And before I really deal with the question of what does it look like and what does it entail for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, this is extremely important to point this out. You have to get this. But we've seen in Colossians 3 that when Paul is talking about family relationships, as I said this morning, he connects that back to the resurrected life in Christ. But even here in our text in Ephesians 5, this is directly connected with being filled with the Spirit of God and living the Spirit-filled life. Um, Chapter 5 and verse 18, he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And so it's just right after that we find this text about husbands and wives. And so what I want you to understand is I'm not just giving you a to-do list. Everything that God commands us to do, uh, whether it's re- related to the family or not, everything that God commands us to do, we need absolute dependence upon the Spirit of God to do those things. Amen. I cannot love my wife like Christ without knowing Christ. Because I'm not Christ. I'm, Brandon Vaughn, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, just like the Apostle Paul said. If I try to love my wife, in a spiritual way, in the power of my flesh, it's not going to end very well. We have to be dependent upon God. We have to be humble before God to, to know that in order to accomplish these things, we can't do it by ourselves. So we have to get that. But the first, I'm only going to, I'm only going to deal with two things this morning uh, about how to love our wives like Christ. Number one, if we're going to love our wives like Christ, we have to love her with a specific love. Number one, a specific love. Uh, verse uh, 25 of Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands love your wives. You do underline that word, your. That's very personal. Uh, because your wife is an individual with individual likes and dislikes and needs, and there's no cookie cutter blanket way of loving your wife you have the sole privilege and the responsibility of loving your wife and what this means is uh, that you have to take the time to get to know who she is and what she needs and so you know the only way that I figured out that I'm not an expert on marriage is by being married I've been in this thing for 16 years And he that hath an ear, let him hear. When I first got married, I knew this much about marriage. And after being married for 16 years, I know this much about being married. (laughs) Experience has a funny way of humbling folks, doesn't it? Experience is a merciless, humbling teacher. And so, we have to take the time to learn our wife. Uh, I got this lesson at the very beginning of our marriage, and... Uh, Man, I thought I was doing so good. Uh, Me and Leah had just gotten married, and and it may have been the first, certainly one of the first places that I took her to eat at a restaurant after we got married. It was one of my favorite places. It was a Cajun-style restaurant, a pretty renowned place, and man, I just love it, because I love spicy food, and Cajun is spicy food. I'm talking about this stuff would knock your socks off, and I thought, man, I'm just going to surprise her, I'm not going to tell her where I'm taking her, and we'll just go, and Man, i was just so excited, and I knew she was just going to relish in my love of this food. And I, she didn't hardly touch it. I said, are you sick? What's wrong with you? She said, I don't like spicy food, and I felt my heart stop. <laughs> and I was thinking, I love this food so much that there's no creature in existence that could not love this food as much as I love this food. But see, I wasn't loving her like she wanted to be loved. I was loving her like I wanted to be loved. I, I had good intentions, but I was confused. And uh, that's a great object lesson that I, I didn't know who my wife was. And I learned that day that she not only can she not eat it, she can't deal with it. She gets acid reflux. And so, uh, guess what? When we go to eat, I try to, I try to be cognizant of that fact of what she can and can't eat, what she does and doesn't like. And so... Uh, We just have to learn to do these things. Um, So the moral to that story is we have to get to know our wives and and then lovingly cater to their needs. Now, Gary Chapman has written a very well-known book entitled The Five Love Languages. And I I would say this about any book outside of the Bible. It's not inspired. Uh, It can be flawed and fallible. But that doesn't mean that we can't gain great insight from it. In any case, whatever it may be, eat the meat and spit out the bone. But Gary Chapman, the basic uh, skeleton of that book was this, that people have different love languages. They communicate love differently. And even though his system in that book is not an end-all, be-all, I think it's very accurate to what I've seen in my own personal life, pastoring, counseling... And so those five, if you're taking notes, those five love languages are these. Uh, Gift giving, words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, and quality time. And I really do, because I've seen it myself, I really do believe that problems can arise in a marriage when the spouses don't know how to communicate their love in a way that can be received by the other person. And one example that Chapman gave in that book that I still remember is um, he had a husband and wife come to him for counseling. And the husband just didn't feel like the wife loved or appreciated him. And she felt like that he just didn't love her. And so kind of the same problem. And, And the man kept repeating that, man, he bought her things all the time. He went to work, he paid the bills, he bought her flowers, he bought her candy, he took her to shop for clothes, and how can she say that I don't love her? But then when the woman would share her side, she would say that he would just keep, you know, she just kept repeating, well, he's just not affectionate at all towards me, at all. He's just a a touch me not, you know? And so they're talking about the same thing, but they're uh, using different things to arrive at the same conclusion. And what Chapman told them, he said, well, you know, just by listening to you talk, the man's, uh, his love language was gift giving. So he tried to communicate his love through his giving, but she didn't communicate it that way. Hers was physical touch, and he just wasn't uh, that affectionate, and so they just kept talking past each other as far as their communicating of love. And so uh, they went and worked on that, and man, it just really helped their marriage. And I've seen it work, and uh, it, would, it would really be beneficial to you to find out your spouse's love language. It would even be a good idea to go through that book together. Now listen, I have sat in my office with different couples over the years doing mar- marriage counseling, and they have serious issues, and I believe this is one of those serious issues in many cases. And I get to talking about um, how to work on it, you know, steps you can take to alleviate the problem. And I have been really shocked and amazed over the years at how many men have reacted. They just, they just kind of just draw up. They just scoff at it like, oh, that's stupid. And, oh, we don't need to do that. And, and I'm thinking, where are, you, where are you at right now? Where, where are you sitting right now? Uh, I'm in your office. Why are you here for marriage counseling? Why do you need marriage counseling? Because we're having problems. Well, we're talking about the problems... And you have no desire to even work on them. That really bothers me. And I tell you, I'll tell you, just like I tell them, it's wicked. It's a rebellious heart against what God has commanded you to do. He didn't say love your wife if you feel like it. He he didn't say love your wife if she's the greatest cook in the world. Or or you know, she's got all these amazing qualities and she never messes up and she's perfect all the time. He said love your wife as Christ loved the church. And that requires that you understand and know who your wife is. And that requires a little bit of time and effort. I really am going to get windy today. I I feel it. I just feel it coming. And I've really been amazed at that, that. That the men that just, it's almost like it's beneath them to work on their marriage in a real meaningful way. And usually, you know, I've even had them say before, in my presence, and in her presence, well, that's just stupid. That's stupid. And I say, okay, what's your alternative plan? When you leave here, what is your plan for fixing the problems in your marriage? It's always been the same answer in some form or another. I don't know. I don't know. That's your Alabama word of the day. I don't know. I don't don't even know how to spell that, I don't even know what it starts with, but it's a word. Famous last words before divorces, I don't know. And so, I say some things after that, but I'm going to share that in the pulpit. But that's, if you're not willing to put in the time to know who your wife is, how can you expect to fix anything? You know, you can ask Andy, I, I've got a 97 truck and it needed some TLC when I got it. And I'm a YouTube mechanic at best, and I've had to, he's been like my doctor, like my primary doctor. You know, it makes a certain noise. Hey, what's your diagnosis on this? You know, or, you know, and there's a lot of stuff I can fix, but then sometimes I get myself in a bind, he helps me. But the thing is, if I don't take the time to figure out what's wrong on that truck, I can't fix it. It takes research, it takes learning, it takes troubleshooting, it takes work. And, it, you know, it's, it's a rewarding thing. You know, I had an exhaust leak even this week, and it was making a loud clanking noise. And I was able to fix that, and it sounds perfect now. There's, there's a lot of uh, satisfaction in that. But it took time and work and effort and research. And men just act like they can put their, their marriages on cruise control, and somehow it's all going to work out. You have lost your mind. And so, we have to take the time to find out who our wives are, and I believe this is a great way to do it. I've seen it work many times. And I, I, but I, I'm just amazed at the marriages. They're on the verge of extinction. They're on the verge of just throwing in the towel and signing the divorce papers. And the men act like they can't be bothered to do anything about it. The problem is they're not coachable. Listen, everybody's got problems everybody's got a lot to learn about multiple facets of life. I'm the same. But we ought to be humble enough to know that. We ought to be humble enough to listen to wise counsel and to learn and to know that we don't know. My football coach used to tell us, he said, boys, he said, I can forgive a lot, I can put up with a lot as long as you're coachable. He said, if you're not coachable, your life's going to be miserable. He said, if you're coachable, I can make a football player out of you. He said, if you're not coachable, I'm going to make a track star out of you. <laughs> that being translated, you fixin' to run a lot. <laughs> Listen, Gary Thomas in another great book on marriage called Sacred Marriage, I highly recommend it. Gary Thomas once said that many times the opposite of biblical love isn't hate, it's apathy. The opposite of biblical love is not always hate, it's apathy. Because listen, Jesus Christ, His love's not apathetic. It's proactive. It's real. It's sacrificial. It it means something. And so men, love your wife specifically. Get to know who she is and cater to her needs. But number two, and I'm done for, for this morning. Not only love your wife specifically, love her sacrificially. Look again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I I cannot even begin to do justice to the magnitude of this command, this responsibility, and this course that he has told us to take. There is no greater allegory in the Bible of love than Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I don't want you to just love your wife. You're, you're not getting off the hook that easy. I want you to love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Do I need to remind you of what Christ did for his bride? What Christ did for the church? That they, first of all, he left his throne of glory to be born of a virgin in a basically a stable. His first bed was a feed trough. He lived and worked in a carpenter shop. And then when it was time to begin his ministry, um, we know about that, but then at the end of his ministry, uh, they whipped him with a cat of nine tails to the point where his organs were hanging out. You can see his bones. They ripped the hair out of his face. They beat him. They cursed him. They spit upon him. They ripped his clothes off. They matted a crown of thorns on his head. They nailed him to a cross and he didn't have to do any of it. That's what he did for us. And... God says, as much as Christ loves the church, that's that's what I want you to do for your wife. That's how I want you to love for your wife, to be willing to lay down your life. What a tall order. This is, by the way, this word love here in the Greek is agape. It's the most serious sacrificial love that you find in the Greek language. It is a sacrificial love. And so, um, also, again, I want to pause because I don't want you to miss this. I want you to pause just for a minute and try to soak in the process and the shock value of what Paul has just said to those first century readers. (laughs) Not just to love her, but to be willing to lay down your life if necessary. And so, uh, imagine, listen, imagine how much Christian men loving their wives like Christ stuck out in that first century culture. Still does today, by the way. In our uh, land that we live in where the family is falling apart at the seams and we can't even define what men and women are anymore. Um, if you don't think that God loves and cares for women, just listen to this statement that he makes t- to a culture that would just been shocked by the thought of that. By the way, I, I, I do find this funny. God doesn't tell the wives to be willing to die for their husbands. God basically says, you know, uh, he's expendable. We can, we can do without him. <laughs> but you better be willing to lay down for her. (laughs) Many men aren't even willing to give their effort, much less their life. And as men, we're commanded to love our wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it on the cross. And there's no more forceful command concerning being like Christ than this simile, love her like Christ. And men, this is so important. This means that the greatest living example of Christ to a lost and dying world is how you love your wife. It'll be the loudest sermon you ever preach, one way or another. It also means that the greatest example of the love of Christ to your children is how you love your wife. Doesn't matter how windy I get, the sermon you preach at home in front of your children is louder than anything I could ever say. It's more profound than anything I could ever say. I cannot stress the importance of this. We have to get this right. But, but what does that look like? I, I don't want to leave you hanging. I, I don't just want to tell you what to do. I, I like to look at this in a how-to manner. What does that even look like? What does the love of Christ mean? Well, <clears throat> there, there are two main aspects to the love of Christ that I really think we need to latch on to. And that is His character and our need. That's all that's required for the love of God to take action is His character, not our worth, not our value, not our merit or the works or the things we've done. His character and our need, and that's it. And so, the love of Christ towards people isn't based on our worthiness, but His character and our need. I love. There's an old song that said, "He looked past my faults and saw my need." And I think about Romans five eight where it says that God hath commended or God hath demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were super successful, awesome, good-looking, intelligent people, Christ died for us. Is that what it says? It says that God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So His love is based on His character and our need, not anything within us. So what that means is that if we're going to love our wife like Christ loved the church, then we have to love her even when she is unlovable. And ladies, I, I told y'all last week that if your husband ever wants to try to bring out that trump card and say here, says, here, you've got to submit to me, you just grab that Bible from him and say, oh, look, it says you're to love me. Because the thing is, you, you can't force submission and you can't force love. You, you, again, in both of those situations, you can get compliance, but you, you can't get the heart in those matters. So if you're going to love like Christ, that means you've got to love her at times when she's unlovable with no strings attached. Listen, we, we, we have to get this here. I, I really am. The parachute's not out yet, but I'm coming in for a landing. We have to get this. And, and that is that there, there are so many couples. Uh, I've seen this firsthand. But, but there's so many couples out there Uh, Married couples, they have this if-then mentality. Well, if he would just do this, then I would do that. Well, if she would just do that, then I would do this. And we have this reactive mentality in marriage. If they're worthy of me doing right, then I'll do right. If they're worthy of my love, then I'll love them. If they're worthy of my submission, then I'll submit. That is not the scriptural message. And what happens is... If the husband and wife are both if-then people, and they're both waiting on the other one to do right, and then in turn they'll do right, they're going to be waiting a long time. They're probably going to wait all the way to the courthouse. The love of God is not reactive, it's proactive. I'm so glad that the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know this is is just an illustration. I'm not trying to humanize Him at all. Y'all know better than that. But I'm so glad that Christ didn't look down from His throne and, And look for sinners who were worthy of His death. And worthy of His love. We would have all ended up in hell. Every single one of us. Because none of us were worthy of that kind of love. So if we're going to love our wife like Christ, it means to love them uh, sacrificially, unconditionally, with no strings attached. And the truth is that if love isn't sacrificial, then what it is, it's bargaining. That's what that is. And... Christ is loving towards undeserving sinners because that's just who he is. And so if professing Christian men can't love their wives, it makes me wonder who they are. I know who Jesus is. But when I see professing Christian men treating their wife and kids like garbage, I'm thinking, who are you? Christ I know and his character I know, but who are you? We are loving Christ when we love our wives like Christ. Think about this. Loving our wife is an act of worship to God. You know that? We rob God of worship when we aren't loving our wife like Christ. And just to get personal for a minute, this, in the last four years since Leah has had this chronic health condition, this is the greatest lesson that I've learned in this trial, is loving unconditionally with no strings attached. I have not arrived. Don't think I have. But God has given me grace, and I've gotten a lot better about that. And here's the thing. Um, I'm to love my wife because Christ loves me, not because she's able to love me in return. And if I'm honest, if I'm just being transparent this morning, I have had some pity parties along the way. You know, Baptists tend to do that. You ever have a Baptist pity party? You might as well say amen or oh me, because I know it's true. <laughs> To back the mule up and drop the plow. Y'all, y'all know you have had a Baptist pity party. And in my pity party, I have thought to myself, you know, there's days where I, I just think to myself, man, I wish she could do this. I wish she could do that. I wish she could drive. I wish, she, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. And God crushed me one day because I was reminded of this thought and it came in the form of a question. I wonder what kind of a bride that I've been to Christ wonder how much he gets out of the deal. Think about that for a minute. When you start getting a measuring stick out and you get the magnifying glass out and you start making a list of all of your spouse's flaws, you better go ahead and make another list of yours. Because Christ loved you in spite of yours. And if we're going to love, Christ, if we're going to love our wives like Christ loved us, we're going to have to get rid of the list and we're going to have to love and we're going to have to give grace and we're going to have to love unconditionally. And listen, I know that <clears throat> every situation is different, and I'm not telling anybody to stay in an abusive situation. I don't believe that. But I will say this, even in the case of adultery, it, you know, God does allow for divorce in that situation. It's in black and white. But He doesn't command it. And it doesn't automatically mean that it's uh, you know a, a, a get-out-free card. There's still things to fight for. There's still things to pray about. There's still things to try to work out. And I have seen marriages saved. I have seen God's grace through marriage of dedicated people that were able to work through that. And if you think about, man, what a a great illustration of God's love for us. If you're familiar with the Old Testament prophet Hosea. God told Hosea to marry a woman. Her name was Gomer. And God knew that this woman was going to become a temple prostitute. And understand this, uh, God's message to the Jews through Hosea was that he had married the people of Israel and they had betrayed him and got a whoring after other gods. And that's exactly what Gomer was experiencing in his own message, in his own marriage. Can you imagine his message from that broken heart as he preached it? He was preaching with the very heart of God. But you know what happened in the end? And There's actually been a movie made about this recently. It's, man, it's really powerful. But at the end, when everything had run its course, it makes it look like that God commanded uh, Hosea to take her back again. Take her back again. And God took Israel back again. And aren't you glad that God takes us? Amen. and never kicks us. He in no wise cast us out. Grace of God can do that. We, we, but here's what we have to get. We need to love our wives horizontally, but in order to do that, we have to be receiving vertically. Constant communication with God. I can't love, I can't love my wife like Christ if, I'm, if I don't know Christ, if I don't love Christ. And so we need to love our wives as Christ loves us, just like Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. He was a descendant of Saul, and he was crippled. And David said, "Is there any left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness on behalf of Jonathan, his friend Jonathan?" And they mentioned Mephibosheth, and understand that when kings took the throne, most time they killed the other king's relatives, so there could be no type of insurrection. And he showed up at Mephibosheth's house with all kind of chariots and riches, and man, he thought the king was coming to kill him, but he came to show him kindness. Not just for Mephibosheth, but on Jonathan's behalf, we need to show our wife kindness on Jesus' behalf. We ought to be looking for reasons to love our wives. I'll say this: I'm done. This would be a great time, young ladies. We got Lord has blessed this church with a lot of beautiful young ladies, godly young ladies, and you know, in the in the coming years of your life, this is going to be something you're looking into—a marriage, a spouse—and. Uh, that's the most important earthly decision you'll ever make. There's no doubt about it. And this is a great time to point out that if he doesn't know Jesus and he doesn't love Jesus, he'll never be able to love you like Jesus. It'll never happen. You will never, you will never circumspect the Holy Spirit and change Him in that way. And so, listen, don't just settle for the first goofball that comes by and pays you attention. You're better than that. You are too precious for that. And I see some, I see some wives looking at their husbands like, well, that's what I did. <laughs> I just I literally just saw it. I'm not calling any names. <laughs> but they'll be glad to talk to you about how that's not a good thing to do. Listen, you're you're too precious for that. You you're too one, you're too valuable for that. You you need to love a man that loves Jesus and that can love you like Jesus, and that can guide you in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that next week.